So, uh, if you've been here the last two weeks, uh, maybe it's your first time, uh, just give a little recap that, you know, the first uh, session we talked about human nature, uh, and my point was let's, let's start with the problem, let's dig the hole and fill it. Um, maybe that's the counterintuitive approach. <laughs> maybe the more intuitive approach would be to start with God. Um, but I think it's helpful to understand the context for the need of God's intervention in Jesus Christ, uh, and that has to do with us. Um, so we talked a lot about um, our fallen uh, nature that's inherent to all of us since Adam and Eve. Um, and then uh, the second time uh, we talked, uh, last time we talked about a framework, theological, systematic theology framework of law on the one hand and Gospel, on the other hand, God's two words, his two voices, the uh, indicative and the imperative, uh, the, the gospel being the, the thing stated and the law being the, the thing that's the demand, the duty that we must live up to. And both are true and good. Um, it's just that the law has no power in and of itself uh, to make us live up to it. As St. Paul says, the law is impotent. Um, it's true uh, and it's righteous. Um, but just hearing it doesn't give us the power to live up to it. And that's why we need uh, Jesus Christ's intervention. And so really the framework that I've been, that I based this three, these three sessions on is it comes from Charles Simeon, who I've mentioned the first time, who's a, who is a Church of England pastor several hundred years ago, a uh, real uh, big historical evangelical figure in the Church of England. Really the Anglican communion owes a lot to Charles Simeon, who when he came to Cambridge, the city of Cambridge, to be a pastor of the church there, and he was preaching this message of the gospel, the law on the one hand and, and the answer of uh, the law in Jesus Christ, the gospel on the other hand, people hated what he had to say. Do you know when he was walking on the sidewalks in, in Cambridge, they would, from what I understand, they would throw like rotten tomatoes at him, like the the old cartoon trope, you know, people just did not like this guy at first. But then people were converted by this message. And uh, he was there for a long time. And uh, a lot of young men, because it was only men in those days, uh, who were students at Cambridge, became priests and missionaries under uh, Charles Simeon's uh, pastoral uh, work. And a lot of them ended up going to places like Asia and Africa. Uh, and so we have a lot to owe to Charles Simeon uh, and his uh, ministry for the widespread nature of the Anglican communion as, as it stands now. But he said um, that uh, we must, uh, in preaching, humble the sinner. These are three sessions, right? So the first one, humble the sinner, exalt the Savior, Jesus Christ, and promote holiness. So today I'm going to talk about promoting holiness. As Frank Limehouse says, who's the previous dean of the Advent. He says, how do you promote holiness? You humble the sinner and exalt the Savior. <laughs> because promoting holiness on itself is just another source of demand that will be impotent uh, to promoting that holiness. So we have to come back again and again to point one and point two. But so let's talk about it anyway. And, and, and the topic of sanctification, salvation, our ability came up in the first two sessions. So now I'll sort of address those things uh, head on. Uh, another way that you could put those three ideas, and this comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, which isn't from our faith tradition. It's a Reformed Catechism, which is sort of a, a confession of faith, but really a, a, a sort of a teaching tool. And maybe some of you grew up with uh, catechesis, where there's a question and answer approach to sort of drill in doctrine. Um, 
the Heidelberg Catechism of the Reformed Tradition bases it on a threefold uh, organization structure, which is guilt, grace, and gratitude. So session one was really a lot about our own guilt, our culpability, uh, our criminality, our dereliction. And session two was about grace, uh, the gospel. First of all, understanding our need for it and our inability to live up to the law, uh, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so today, in terms of promoting holiness, really what I could talk to you a lot about is gratitude, responding to that grace. I mean, D, this is serendipity. I didn't tell him to say what he was going to say about stewardship, but that's a lot of what he was talking about. You know, in giving money to the church, you're giving it really to God. You're giving back to God what he's given to you uh, because you're, of your gratitude, uh, your gratitude for his provision, your gratitude for his grace and mercy, uh, even while we were trespassers. So I hope that's a helpful framework. And I've got a handout. And like last time, uh, I made 20 copies. I think there are probably more than 20 people. So if you are uh, with your spouse, uh, maybe just take one and share it. Or if there's someone near you that you like enough to share uh, with. And when I brought in the packet the first time, remember, I said, I'm going to read a lot at you. And I'm going to do that again. I apologize. It's really not uh, the way I normally teach. But for here, in terms of like 101, the basics, what I want to get across is like, I'm not making this stuff up. Uh, don't kill the messenger. You know, I'm just the sort of uh, conduit uh, through which this message hopefully flows in a way that's understandable. And Brandon, too. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to read some things to you. Uh, some are more lighthearted than others. Uh, but uh, the cover there is my daughter drew this this morning uh, in Sunday school, and I thought this was hilarious. <laughs> And it's so her, uh, it says at the bottom, it's, that's the cover of what I just handed out to you. I like how God made me. And it's Zoe with a frowny face. And she's really been grumpy lately, more so than happy. So it's really, you know, I mean, it really is just a sort of mirror reflection of her. And I love her to death uh, in spite of that. Um, and, uh, you know, my other daughter once, do you know the Eric Carle book, The Hungry, Very Hungry Caterpillar? At the very end, it ends with the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. She, took, she was taking a, uh, you know, in preschool, a class had, her make, had the kids make the, the caterpillar becoming the butterfly because they were reading that book. And my daughter made what looks a lot like the butterfly in the, in the Very Hungry Caterpillar, but it had a frowny face. <laughs> it was hilarious. I mean, it's really just sort of the, like I said in the first session, the both sides, right? You know, the, the division in my heart. I want to be like this, but uh, something's holding me back. And so really, um, this isn't the way that God made Zoe, but uh, it's the way she feels. So anyway, before we begin... Uh, I have a prayer which is on the next page, and I bring this in because I think it speaks to uh, our topic at hand. This is the prayer that we so often read if you come to morning prayer in the morning uh, at the very end of the service, and I really enjoy it. And it kind of is sort of like if you, if, if the, it's almost gotten to the point where if the officiant doesn't read this prayer, you wonder, did he agree with my sermon? Uh, because you'll hear the words here. Um, so this is the prayer after worship. Uh, number 68. Uh, let us pray. 
Grant, we beseech thee, Almighty God, that the words which we have heard this day with our outward ears may through thy grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and praise of thy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, and so the, the idea of the, if this is in the context of worship, the, the preached word, faith comes through hearing, as St. Paul says, uh, the importance of uh, the gospel being preached rightly from the pulpit. Do you know that our pulpit here has a, a little brass plaque right here on the right hand that Frank Limehouse had inlaid that says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel? Um, and uh, some people, when they come to the Lenten preaching series, are really kind of intimidated when they see that, like because the, the Advent's really known uh, throughout the Anglican Communion. Uh, our church, the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, known for being a place uh, from which the gospel rightly proclaimed happens every Sunday from that pulpit, and that's something that uh, Frank was trying to get across, but the idea that the gospel coming in as we hear it, should uh, in our lives uh, naturally bear fruit through a faith that is alive. And that's, uh, that's what it's saying here, uh, uh, that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and praise of thy name. And so here this uh, scripture passage, likewise, uh, from St. John, where Jesus says, abide in me as I in you. And this isn't in your packet, I'm just reading it. This is a as a scriptural framework for today. Jesus said, Abide in me as I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Well, um, I'll kind of circle back to that throughout, and uh, maybe what Brandon has to say later, we'll, we'll address it. But uh, before I, I move on to, to other things, if you skip to the next page, uh, there's what turned out to be a bad photocopy, I apologize, is uh, something personal. And some of you might know this story, maybe some of you have seen it. Um, just uh, something from my own life. Uh, this is uh, hanging on the wall in my office. So I took a photo of it with my cell phone, printed it out, and then photocopied it, and it came out gray like this. Um, but this is, uh, do you know the, I brought in the New Yorker the first time, uh, which, you know, if it comes in in two out of three sessions, it's kind of a big deal in my life. And I said, I can't remember the guy's name. Is, is Eustace Tilly. Tilly. That was the guy who was like curved in, remember, looking at the... Remember the cover where, like this? Um, well, this is from the New Yorker as well. Do you know the, the back of the New Yorker magazine, they have this cartoon caption contest. Have you seen this before? Uh, or maybe you've heard about it. If you haven't, what they do is they put a cartoon um, at the back of the magazine. And there are cartoons all throughout the New Yorker. The New Yorker is famous for the, these great uh, cartoons. So they have a cartoon that's blank. There, there's no caption, so it's a contest, and you could submit an idea for a caption, and then there are finalists, and then people vote on the three finalists, and then there's a winner. There's only been, at this point, 400-some-odd winners, and I won. <laughs> this, is, this is me. So uh, if you play chess, you'll get the humor. This was two years ago. Uh, where the one guy on the chess piece, Cowboy, says, I suggest that you back up slowly two paces and take one step to the side, which is the appropriate move 
for a night chess piece, right? <laughs> and so this happened, and, uh, you know, I, for, for about nine months I was playing this game, and it almost became like a devotional thing. Every Monday I would do it and um, almost sort of like lift it up to God, you know? I mean, I was really, I was thinking a lot about humor and stand-up comedy at this time, um, and so that's why I was doing it. And then I became a finalist. I got this email saying I was going to be a finalist, and I couldn't believe it. Um, and this is a big deal because I, I was going to be published in The New Yorker. And so I did a whole campaign to get people to vote for me, uh, <laughs> lobbying. And um, uh, through my broad reach on the Internet, uh, I won. Uh, and so I was just over the moon for about three hours, uh, the day <laughs> where the news broke. Uh, you know, because I had sort of, I was like, well, what's, what do you do? After? My friend called me the next day, my friend who lives in Charleston, uh, and he said, well, well, what do you do now? What are you going to do now? <laughs> what, what, you know, what do I do now? You know, I come get a job at the Advent. Um, that's what happened. But um, but really was kind of a conundrum, because this often happens in life where you sort of reach a goal, uh, and uh, and um, you uh, it, it, it's not... It's not what you thought it was going to be, you know. Um, this did not bring about perfection. Uh, you know, although I sort of wanted to rest on these laurels, I could not. Uh, it did not justify me. <laughs> um, although for some people they thought it was kind of cool, um, life goes on, you know. Um, and I've even entered again several times, not too much, and I've never been a finalist again, you know. It's not... A sure bet that um, I'll ever win again. Um, it was just sort of almost lucky. Uh, but uh, And so there, I think that that's a lot like the human life, though, that when we uh, strive for certain things, um, we either do not uh, attain them in the way that we uh, want to, or when we do, our, our hearts move on to the next thing. We are very fickle. As, uh, as, as Marcus Mumford said, Marcus Mumford says, uh, man is a giddy thing. Man is a giddy thing. Our hearts are fickle. Um, and so here's another thing that I bring into you that I wrote uh, about sanctification. Uh, to be a lighthearted element before I go into uh, a little more dense theology, this is a book that just came out called Mockingbird at the Movies, which we sell in our bookstore here. Uh, Mockingbird's a ministry uh, that I'm a part of. And I wrote one of the chapters uh, on the movie Groundhog Day. Have you all seen, who's seen Groundhog Day? You know what I'm talking about with Bill Murray? <laughs> if you haven't seen it, hopefully it's understandable enough when you read it. Um, and if you haven't seen it, uh, what is it? I think February 2nd is Groundhog Day. So it's coming right around the corner. Now's the time. Um, so uh, this is called, It's Going to Last You the Rest of Your Life, Sanctification According to Groundhog Day. I have a tradition of watching the film Groundhog Day every year around February 2nd. Repeated viewings are a fitting homage given the movie's plot, which has weatherman Phil Connors reliving Groundhog Day over and over again for what seems like eternity. In this story, only Phil knows what's happened the previous Groundhog Day, but everyone else wakes up as if they're living it for the first time. This existential tale says a lot about human nature particularly the realities of sanctification, that is, the process of becoming holy. Many of us, influenced by Protestant Reformation theology, often explain that we are weak on sanctification. 
We regard Christians as being not terribly different from non-Christians in that our flawed human nature persists despite our saving faith, baptism, and best efforts. Such an understanding flies in the face of prevailing notions that Christians are or should be inherently nicer and holier people. In this respect, Groundhog Day serves as a good analogy for how sanctification works, or any kind of real personal growth for that matter. It is not necessarily something uh, we can achieve by our own will and strength. When Phil tries to live up to the standards of perfection held by his love interest, Rita, he falls endlessly short. Consider when Rita describes her vision of the perfect guy. Rita, well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. Phil, that's me. Rita, he's intelligent, supportive, funny. Phil, intelligent, supportive, funny. Me, me, me. Rita, he's got a good body, but he doesn't have to look in the mirror every two minutes. Phil, I have a great body, and sometimes I go months without looking. Rita, he likes animals and children, and he'll change poopy diapers. Phil, does he have to use the word poopy? I'm really close on this one, really, really close. Although Phil says he's close, we're in on the secret that he is egocentric and embittered, essentially the opposite of what Rita desires. Yet he is too smitten to give up his attempt to attain Rita's vision of perfection. Phil later feigns compatibility after learning Rita's favorite drink is a sweet vermouth on the rocks with a twist. Despite this being a cocktail Phil obviously detests, over the course of the next repeated days, he orders this drink in her presence at a bar much to Rita's surprise. But his ploy doesn't stop there. He also attempts to match her sentimentalism. What shall we drink to, Rita asks. He jokes, to the groundhog. A disappointed Rita says, I always drink to world peace. The next day, he explains, I like to say a prayer and drink to world peace before offering her white chocolate, which makes her sick. The process repeats itself world without end, with Phil constantly upping the ante only to fall short on some new and unforeseen point. Phil is motivated by all the wrong factors, and somehow Rita tacitly picks up on his manipulative inauthenticity. She smells the rat. Even Phil himself doesn't like who he's becoming by pretending to be perfect. It's all lies. He burns himself out trying to live up to Rita's unachievable and oppressive standards, becoming somewhat maniacal in the process. The film depicts Phil's desperation and decline as Rita literally slaps him in the face for a variety of untold reasons during a montage of new Groundhog Days. Slap, 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 slap. Thank goodness Phil eventually accepts his plight and the futility of trying to become Rita's perfect guy. One Groundhog Day, he stops his charade and opens up to Rita, telling her the whole truth about his situation and sharing his emotions. Despite Phil's crazy story, Rita surprisingly shows him some compassion, saying, maybe I should spend the day with you as an objective witness to see what happens. On this day, Phil repents of his old ways and admits his genuine love for Rita as she innocently falls asleep in his room. While in previous scenes, Phil attempts to commit suicide to stop the endless cycle of Groundhog Days. In this scene, we witness a more powerful death, a death of the old self-centered, sleazy, and bitter Phil with his <laughs> ulterior motives. The first time I saw you, something happened to me. I never told you, but I knew that I wanted to hold you as hard as I could. I don't deserve someone like you, but if I ever could, I swear I would love you for the rest of my life. Phil has a sort of conversion here after bottoming out. 
This is the film's fulcrum, the point where transformation finally begins. And it happens not because he tries so hard to become the vision of Rita's perfect guy. Rather, he gives up, resigning himself to the endless cycle of Groundhog Day and Punxsutawney. He takes up piano and ice sculpting because he is actually interested in learning these skills for their own sake. He tries to save an old beggar's life over and over again because he begins to genuinely care. He becomes altruistic, daily saving the same boy falling from a tree and fixing flat tires for little old ladies. He has died to his old self and his desire to win Rita over. Interestingly, it is only at this point, when his detachment becomes complete, that Rita actually falls for Phil, and the unseen forces at work end his twilight zone of repeated Groundhog Days. There has been fan discussion of how much time elapses for Phil in his time loop. Harold Ramis, the director of the film, states in the DVD commentary that he believes 10 years pass, but he has been quoted elsewhere explaining that it could be 30 or 40 or even 10,000. As Phil says during a particularly suicidal phase while reporting on Punxsutawney Phil, the famous groundhog who predicts how long winter will last. You want a prediction about the weather? You're asking the wrong Phil. I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold, it's going to be gray, and it's going to last you for the rest of your life. Sanctification is similar, is it not? A long, frustrating, humbling process, and it's going to last you for the rest of your life. It seems to finally come about only when we accept our imperfection and inability to live up to anybody's, including God's standards, of the perfect guy or gal, dying to our selfish desires for victory and acknowledging that we remain sinners in and of ourselves. In God's sight, we are accepted as if uh, we were not flawed because of Jesus Christ. It is at these points of surrender in our lives that God's grace begins to bear fruit just as it does with Phil when he finally submits himself to the realities of Groundhog Day. Well, um, I, uh, I could have come in and talked to you about that, but uh, that's been rewritten several times, so it's sort of hammered out. And um, I hope that gives you a, a little more lighthearted version of, of the next thing I want to show you. But um, hopefully you were able to uh, follow along, even if you haven't seen the film um, and uh, the the idea that um, uh, when we resign ourselves to the situation, uh, the situation of our uh, inherent deep flawedness and accept it for what it is, and maybe detachment's not the right word, but something like disattachment um, from trying to constantly live up to the, the endless cycle, this fruitless cycle, only then do we actually begin to seem to bear fruit. Uh, Martin Luther, when he was a, a, a monk, was so convicted by his inability to live up to God's laws, and not only to God's laws, but all these accretions that Roman Catholicism during the medieval time, and also especially in monastic uh, communities, he was unable to live up to all these demands. He would wake up his brothers in the middle of the night and constantly want to confess his sins. <laughs> because he was so deeply convicted of never being able to live up to this. And we have uh, th that emotion of where uh, Martin Luther was as a monk in this monastery to thank for the Protestant Reformation, really, uh, his inability to live up to these things. Uh, and then uh, finally acknowledging that bore the good fruit of the theology that came out of his life. Um, 
in our uh, Episcopal church, and I don't want to sell you on, and maybe you already are an Episcopalian or consider yourself Anglican. I'm not here to sell you on that, but um, we do have uh, a historic confession of faith that I find super helpful. I like it. I like the way that it's written. It's it's not super long. It's it's short. It's almost pithy uh, in a way that I think is uh, really helpful and important. Um, and I commend it to you. And uh, maybe you're not used to reading these kinds of documents, um, but I say give it a give it a whirl. You know, at least once um, for understanding uh, where it is that that we stand as a church body. And as I said before, it resides in the the back uh, section of our Book of Common Prayer, the Articles of Religion, uh, which uh, were informed by the, the Protestant Reformation as it uh, stood in England. And some of these articles are, are responses to Roman Catholicism. Some of them are responses to extreme reformers from movements like the Anabaptists. Um, so they live in their historic context, but still I think they're applicable to our day and age. They're short-sighted in certain ways because they're not written in 2016. Um, and yet when uh, responding to certain things that came out of medieval Roman Catholicism, I think are applicable to uh, our secular culture uh, here and now. And so the, the next uh, page, uh, I, I, I photocopied this, and I'm not going to go over this one, but remember the first session I brought in uh, the article on original sin and the article on free will, which are uh, the beginning of a section in the articles that are probably the most helpful, the ones about human nature, about us and our faith. The other ones are helpful for uh, understanding exactly where our church stands, about the Trinity, what is scripture, uh, what is the church, and things like that. And a lot of that stuff you probably know and uh, abide by. But the ones that I think are the real sticking point are these, the ones that start at Article 9 and then go on to Article 10. And then if you flip the page after free will are the ones that I want to talk about today. And remember, by the way, with the free will, what I said is that um, we don't have free will. Sorry to break it to you. We don't have free will in the way that popular culture likes to tell you. Uh, um, uh, if you don't believe me, try to live in this life. <laughs> um, try to have a New Year's resolution. Try like me to wake up every morning at 5 a.m. to exercise, only to do it half the time. Because the other half the time, I'm just like, wouldn't it be nice to stay in bed for another hour? <laughs> my will isn't entirely free in that situation although I want to exercise every day at 5 a.m. I just simply don't uh, and it might be something that might be uh, kind of trivial in your eyes but it's probably it might be something else for you uh, and there are deeper seated things of course that are even more problematic like addiction uh, uh, a, a mentor bishop of mine Fitzsimmon Allison says the alcoholic has free will in choosing between a beer and a whiskey <laughs> but does not have the free will to choose not to drink. And it's only in a program like AA where we say we are powerless to the situation that we begin uh, to, to move on, to recover. And we're all addicts in some way in our humanity. Maybe it's not alcohol, maybe it's something else for you. And so that's free will. And the next thing is on the justification of man, mankind, humans. Excuse the male-centric language, but this was written a long time ago. Um, 
This is an important doctrine of the church, the doctrine of justification, because the real question is, um, are we righteous? That's the real question of this life. Just as I said with my New Yorker cartoon, I was hoping for some righteousness in terms of my street cred about winning the New Yorker cartoon caption contest. Um, that is a sort of uh, type and shadow of our deep-seated desire to have righteousness before God. Um, and we feel it played out in this life and other avenues, maybe in our profession, maybe in the clothes that we wear, maybe the car that we want to drive but don't drive, maybe in the house that we're uh, trying to buy to keep up with the Joneses. And so really the question is righteousness. How are we righteous before a holy God who in his sight, if we're not righteous, will be blown to smithereens? Remember that God tells Moses, you can't look at me, but I'll put you inside this rock cleft to hide you from my glory, which will annihilate you. And you can only get a glimpse of my backside, which I think is hilarious. Um, uh, because you, you, you can't just allow God's perfectness to be in your presence without right, complete, absolute righteousness, or you'll be destroyed. Um, and so that's this idea of justification. How are we, th therefore, justified in his sight? Um, we, as it says, are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by faith, and not for our own works of deser or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only is a most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort, as more largely is expressed in the homily of justification. You, you can ignore that homily thing. The, the churches were in such a bad state in England at the early stages of the Reformation, they didn't want the priests preaching because they had such bad doctrine that they had this bound book of homilies that they had to, by law, read that were written by some guys whose theology they knew was good. And so it's further expounded in that homily, which uh, you can find probably online. And so this is the idea of justification. How are we justified in God's sight? Well, because we're given Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness. The gospel's right there. It's as simple as that. The other great word that's not in here that I love, remember this. If all that you remember today is this word, uh, uh, mission accomplished. Uh, and old words are so great because sometimes they say so much more. It's this word, imputation. Imputation. Have you ever heard that word before? Um, basically, it means to... To, 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 to say about someone, to give someone or something a quality that they actually do not have. Um, and so we, are, we have Jesus Christ's perfect righteousness imputed onto us. It's not something inputted, but imputed onto us. It's a covering. Just as Moses was put in that rock, rock of ages cleft for me, um, that rock of ages is Jesus Christ, in whom we stand on a firm foundation and hide behind. Um, uh, so that uh, is uh, justification and imputation are, are very related. And so what happens then if we're still flawed people and we're justified, that begs the question, well, then what? Well, then what does life look like? Do we go on sinning? Remember is the question that uh, Paul asks, and he says, by no means. Uh, and so the next article is on good works, on doing good things. And so now we're starting to get into the meat of sanctification, uh, promoting holiness, expressing our gratitude. 
And it says, albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. Um, let me just read that again. This is... Uh, this is really important stuff, and it's so poetically written. Albeit that good works, which are the fruits of faith, and follow after justification, cannot put away our sins and endure the severity of God's judgment, yet are they pleasing and acceptable to God in Christ, and do spring out necessarily of a true and lively faith, insomuch that by them a lively faith may be as evidently known as a tree discerned by the fruit. And so in our faith, uh, in our justification that comes through our faith, we are as if we were dead branches on the side of the road grafted into the vine of life that has the lifeblood and therefore brought back to life and the fruit comes. The fruit comes because of the vine and not because of us. And as this passage, this article says, that is a true and lively faith. This faith is alive and therefore it works. Um, that doesn't mean, therefore, that we're always perfect. But in God's sight, at least, uh, he sees these as good works because they come from the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so then you might ask, well, what about good people? You know, what about Mahatma Gandhi? You know, what about my Aunt Sally, who's an atheist, but she's really nice? You know, what about so-and-so, who is really altruistic? And I'll say, I know a lot of atheists who are much nicer and do much more altruistic things than a lot of Christians. What about them? And so this article answers that question because, because it anticipates uh, the question which it begs of works before justification. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his spirit are not pleasant to God for as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ, neither do they make men meet to receive grace. Uh, or as the, this is the medieval theologians say, uh, deserve grace of congru uh, congruity. Yea, rather, for that they are not done as God hath willed and commanded them to be done. We doubt not but they have the nature of sin. And so what it's saying is without the intervention of Jesus Christ, God sees our best works, uh, as the Old Testament says, as filthy rags. Um, and that might sound like really bad news. <laughs> it is. It's really bad news. And when you understand that, though, you understand the, the dire need uh, for uh, God's intervention in our lives of Jesus Christ and saving faith in him alone and through nothing at all. So even before I was a Christian, there was a long time in my life, most of my life not a Christian, even when I was doing good things. I used to, um, I was in San Francisco on the Bicycle Coalition. I used to be on this organization called the Friends of the Urban Forest and we would uh, plant trees on the sidewalks in San Francisco to green the city. Uh, you know, I used to um, I used to tell people I love them. You know, I used to take care. I had two cats that I used to take care of. Even then, these good things that I were doing, I was doing, 
they were tainted by my total depravity, my sin nature. And so anything that I was doing, no matter how well-intentioned, in God's sight, uh, still deserving of annihilation, need to hide in the rock of ages. Uh, and, and it's only after that fact that uh, works can be said to be good. Well, what then about, um, what about then after justification, after becoming a Christian, um, trying like Martin Luther uh, to add to, um, to the uh, dynamic by doing things to earn greater and greater grace and favor? And this is why, as the articles article say elsewhere, that the doctrine of purgatory is, is vain um, and uh, should be uh, reviled uh, because a lot of the thinking about purgatory has to do with, well, now that I'm a Christian, there are still new things that I need to do in order to merit more and more of God's favor so I could spend less and less time in a place called purgatory and go more quickly to heaven or intervene on behalf of my... Um, my uh, my relatives and this was actually going on. They used to sell things called indulgences that you could buy or earn, and they would say, "I have one actually. I got an indulgence in Spain because I went on a pilgrimage, and I have an indulgence. You can still get them to this day." Um, and it would say, like, it would have your name, and it was like a it was like currency uh, to add to favor. And so this article asks about this, and we have other things that we do even as Protestants. Uh, that we think if we, um, if we still continue to, to do certain things that we'll earn more and more of God's favor. And so this, this article is about works of supererogation, which is a word you never heard, hear anymore, but that means beyond duty, above and beyond duty. Voluntary works beside over and above God's commandments, uh, which they call works of supererogation, cannot be taught without arrogancy and impiety. For by them men do declare that they do not only render unto God as much as they are bound to do, but that they do more for his sake than of bounden duty is required. Whereas Christ saith plainly, when ye have done all that are commanded to you, say we are unprofitable servants. So basically saying that these endeavors are... um, uh, if, if for the reasons that we're doing them is to earn more of God's favor, it's an empty set. Uh, it might be nice to have a good devotional life in terms of responding to God's grace, but that's a whole different thing. There's nothing more that we can do to earn God's favor than to put our rest in Jesus Christ alone and abide in that truth alone. Um, and so uh, you can go on to read more and more of uh, of these uh, articles, uh, the next two are, are helpful along the same lines, um, uh, saying that, uh, uh, that uh, Jesus Christ is the only one who lived a sinless life. Um, we've all been uh, sinning since Adam and Eve. There's been no, dysfunctional, uh, no non-dysfunctional family since Adam and Eve. We all live in dysfunctional families, uh, and we're all dysfunctional. But there's only one who was, who lived a perfect and sinless life, and this is Jesus Christ. And so his... Uh, uh, his perfect and sinless life is imputed onto us. That's the whole point of his coming in the New Testament. That's the good news of the Christian message. And the next one about sin after baptism, that yes, we do continue to sin after baptism. There are some people who think that we don't, that it's something altogether different, that when we're baptized, we're washed of this original sin nature. Boy, wouldn't that be nice. 
because <clears throat> I can tell you both my girls are baptized and they go on sinning. Uh, and so, so do I, you know? Um, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and therefore the idea of humbling the sinner and exalting the savior is helpful because we're constantly humiliated and he is constantly exalted. And we can go back to that point and repent over and over again. And, and his mercy comes, it steadily flows. Uh, and that's why when we come to church every weekend and, and repent of our sins, that forgiveness is declared to us because we need to hear it over and over again. Because if you're like me, I need to hear that actually every day. But at least every Sunday is nice. And then another one I just attached but won't go over. And maybe um, maybe this is a cop out because I just don't really want to get into it <laughs> too much uh, um, because it just raises tons of uh, tons of questions that we we just sort of don't have time for. Um, but uh, I think it kind of came up at least implicitly last two times, which is predestination. And this this article on predestination, I think, is really helpful because what it says is that predestination is a really helpful doctrine for the believer. It's a very unhelpful doctrine for the non-believer because if a non-believer hears it, it sets the wheels in motion in very unhelpful ways. Um, But to the believer, it's good news because what it says is none of this rested our own merit. It all came through Jesus Christ alone. I used to work with somebody, a priest, who would preach all the time in this sort of manner where he would say something to the extent of something like, he'd say one of two sort of things. He'd say, God does the 99%, but he leaves the door cracked open just a little bit for you to do the 1%. And I found that to be very bad news. I found that to be very unhelpful Uh, because I can't even do the 0.01% most of the time. But the good news is that he does the 100%. uh, And it's through uh, his inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through his grace and providence that we do come to saving faith. And that is good news indeed for the believer. To the non-believer, they might think, well, shucks, what about me? Because I'm not there at all. I might not ever be. But I'll say as a personal witness that for 25 years of my life, I was not a Christian. I did not believe this stuff. And so if someone looked upon me and said, this guy is not one of the elect, they were actually wrong. They were actually wrong. I just wasn't there yet. Um, And now that I read this doctrine, it's good news uh, to the humbled sinner. Um, And so uh, this Anglican approach to, to understanding of predestination I find to be uh, balanced, and yet it still exists, the doctrine of the elect in the Anglican tradition. It's not just from Calvin, uh, and Calvin's kind of gotten a bad rap about that. Um, But we have it too, and if you read through it, um, I hope you'll find it to be an edifying uh, uh, understanding of predestination, and it relates to everything that I've been trying to say uh, in terms of uh, bearing fruit and doing good works Uh, as uh, I read from John's gospel at the beginning of the session that he is the true vine and he begs us to abide in him. And the word abide comes from the same root word of abode, my humble abode, which means a dwelling place, a house, to live in, to rest, to be grafted into that vine. And through that true and lively faith, good works will be born. And the flip side, though, is we still continue to sin. We still bear bad fruit, too. 
um, and this mortal life. Well, what does this all mean for you, and how does this uh, hit pay dirt um, in your own personal life especially, uh, and maybe here in the church? Um, if you flip to the next page, I just photocopied a cover of a book to give you the to remind me to talk about it, um, but to give you the premise behind it. Because uh, if you haven't met Andrew yet, maybe you just come to the, the evening service. Um, uh, Andrew Pearson's our dean. Uh, he's my boss, our senior pastor here. Um, he's given us all this book uh, as a sort of vision, especially going into 2016. And this morning we had our annual meeting. Maybe some of you were there and he mentioned this of uh, an approach towards ministry. He'd like to see us take more and more. And the, the book is called The Trellis and the Vine and basically says two things that, um, you know, a trellis is this uh, infrastructure here that helps the vines to grow. Um, the, the author talks about how he has these two vines and uh, these two trellises in his garden. And one of them is really beautiful uh, and uh, well-maintained, but hardly any vine is growing on it. And there's another one that is, uh, you can hardly see the trellis because the vine is so overgrown. And probably if you looked back, the trellis is probably needing some propping up and is falling apart in certain places. And the author says that the, the, the church needs both trellis and vine work. The trellis work is often the sort of programmatic stuff that we do that looks fancy, like this fancy trellis, you know, the, the outward facing things our edifice, um, our youth ministry out there, you know, in terms of if somebody came and saw the crowd that was there, you know, those are good things, uh, but that's, uh, that's trellis work. Vine work is focusing on the individual, uh, the, 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 the believer, um, uh, discipleship, doing exactly what we're doing here right now, and this is why we have this class, uh, because the focusing on the vine will bear good fruit, and so, so often we put the cart before the horse and try to create trellis work that's not actually good fruit at all. It's coming from an altogether different place. And that's true for the church, but it's probably true. I know it's true for my life, and so therefore it's probably true for your life that sometimes our energies put uh, in the external facing things, keeping up with the Joneses, whatever that looks like, and not the, the heart matters. Um, and uh, so, so uh, that's, the, that's the vine, and the vine of the believer bears good fruit. And don't be anxious if you look at your own life and you say, well, I'm not bearing a lot of good fruit. Because one of the supreme fruits that you can bear is a recognition of that fact and a need for repentance and salvation. That alone is good fruit. <laughs> Uh, to, 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 to come to the place to say, woe be unto me, a sinner. Have mercy upon me, God. Uh, that is good fruit. And that's exactly what James is talking about in his epistle, where he, he talks about um, uh, true faith, ha- uh, bearing good, having good works. Um, uh, a, a true faith works. Well, um, I've got about five minutes before I hand the baton. Is that enough time for you? Fifteen minutes? Okay. Uh, to respond to anything, if you all have any questions, comments, concerns.
Or we could take a five minute break and you could eat your chips and cookies and uh, get some coffee. <laughs> oh, and the door does clean. Oh, did you? Okay. And I'll say to anyone who's listening to this, I don't think it's worthy of being recorded, but, you know. Do you want me to wait till we give them a break? For just a second. Oh, you wait a minute, let people rest. Wait, I guess for Libby to get back? Can we do that? I need more law in my life from you. I'm, I'm wanting law. Give me structure. Libby, yeah. Huh? Thank you. For <coughs> um, well, uh, hi guys again. Uh, Again, my name is Brandon. You remember me from last week. Uh, so Matt asked me, and I think it actually works out. Maybe he planned it this way, but I, I was just thinking while I was sitting there, it kind of worked out to ask me to mention this because it kind of goes along with the Christian life and gratitude. Um, and I don't really have much to say other than just to share that I've been uh, reflecting and thinking about uh, a ministry idea and in a way, it's a little bit of a sexy topic right now, and I, I'm certainly not interested in it for that reason, but I think it's uh, good to talk about. Um, so uh, thinking about sort of integrating faith and work or um, thinking through vocation. Um, so I don't really have anything specifically to say. I'll just kind of talk for a second and then see if you guys have any questions. Um, you know, we love to quote Luther around here, so I'll start by quoting Luther. Uh you got to be careful with quoting Luther. He's really entertaining, but uh, sometimes he can get carried away. But he's a, he's a great guy to quote. Um, he had this uh, thing he talked about in one of his works um, called The Masks of God. Uh, the Masks uh, of God. 
Uh, and so, you know, if you think about like when we pray the Lord's Prayer, um, uh, what's the line? Uh, Give us this day our daily bread, right? So when we're asking God for that or in whatever way we are praying, Lord, provide for us. Um, you know, when we're asking, give us our bread, uh, Luther comments that uh, God doesn't answer that by just magically causing bread to appear before our eyes, or he doesn't magically, uh, food doesn't just poof out of nowhere, right? Um, he's actually answering it by, through means. Uh, when we say provide bread for us or provide food for us, well, he's actually answering that by uh He's raised up a baker. He's raised up someone to grow the grain. He's uh, all these things to come together, um, uh, and you know various vocations. So, so God is actually uh, the theological word is providence. He's providing for his creation. Um, you know, I remember reading uh, a while ago, uh, and I realized, wow, I've been functionally a deist. I mentioned that last week. A deist is. Uh, just to be really kind of simple, is is someone who looks at the world, thinks God created it, and stepped back from it. So he's no longer uh, intimately involved with the, with his creation. But Christianity has always confessed uh, throughout its history that God provides. He not only creates, but he provides for his creation. Um, and so I kind of want to recover that. I think we all functionally, as we go out from here, are deists. Uh, and, and for us to reflect on the gospel and the Christian narrative, uh, to, to be shaped by that in such a way that as God gathers, gathers us by his spirit to receive the word from him, to receive, to, to, to receive the good news, to be washed by him in baptism, to be, to be fed in the Lord's Supper, uh, then we're uh, you know, called to, uh, to go out of here in a transformed way uh, in our various vocations and our callings as as retailers, as artists, as businessmen, as lawyers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as factory workers. Um, so I thought one kind of basic step to kind of begin this, because I don't really know where to begin, is maybe to see if anyone, any of you or anyone else in the church might be interested in reading this book by uh, Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. You may have heard of him. Uh, he wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor. Uh, connecting your your work to God's work. Um, so if you think you might be interested in, um, uh, you know, reflecting on that with me, you know, I don't have all the answers. Uh, if you're a say a lawyer, I don't have all the answers to what to what it means to be a lawyer living out the Christian life. Uh, to in thinking through all those implications, that's where I think we together uh, as you know, a pastor and um, other people as lawyers can come together and reflect on, well, what does it mean to to sort of be made new and, and to live differently in, in light of the good news uh, in my calling as a lawyer or whatever? Um, so if you're interested in reading that together and beginning that kind of process to think through that, um, let me know right now after, um, after we end. Uh, and I guess the only thing else I'll add is, which is kind of a, an appendix to last week and this as well, um, I think it'd be great, uh, you know, I mentioned this is a good, a good book 
for uh, introducing law and gospel, which is what I talked about last week. Um, but I think it'd be good because I think most people in the church or around are interested in theology. Uh, we want to know what we believe and why we believe it. Um, and so if you're interested in uh, maybe reading this or this or or a theological work to come together and begin to uh, reflect on that and think through that, please let me know that too. That's, those are just kind of two ideas I've been thinking about. Um, does anyone have any questions about what Matt said or what I said or maybe what I said last week? Uh, did, did you go back and watch Frozen and were you moved to tears this time? Or did you download Joy Williams and listen to the album? I have a feeling no one downloaded Joy Williams and listened to that album. So that means you failed this class. <laughs> well, Brandon, your talk just got up on computer, so it's our website. So oh, okay, okay. So okay. Right, right. Okay, great. Yeah, so does anyone have any, any thoughts to add to that or questions or anything like that? Um, if not, I just thought of this. I kind of was reflecting on what to say. I'll, I'll add this just as a, an example of what you encounter and I think how we all tend to think. Um, uh, this, I just will never forget this because it spoke volumes to me. So, you know, this whole uh, Confederate flag debate that was going on uh, several months ago. Well, I read, you know, was going through Facebook and read one of my friends from home. He posted uh, something uh, you know, vying for one particular, he, he was advocating one position. Uh, and I just felt, it didn't matter really what side he was on, uh, I just felt like the way he said it or and what he said did not really reflect um, sort of a Christ-shaped life. So I responded with some comment. Well, one person responded and said, I know Jesus died and all that, but this has nothing to do with this. And I was like, wow, well that's, that's what the church has been turning out. That's, that's the truncated gospel we have been preaching. And, and when I read that, I was like, well, that's a bastardization of the gospel. Because um, uh, the gospel actually says that uh, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has dissolved our old identities and made us new in him. And so, so that's kind of the thinking, I'll just say, behind this uh, faith and work vocation thing because, um, you know, I don't consider myself going in a seminary and ministry in whatever way as a higher calling, but, but we're all called to serve uh, in various vocations. So, yeah.